I love every HelloFresh dinner, and it's really hard to pick a favorite. But this week, I made a wonderful sort of homestyle chicken and biscuit pot pie. And it was like so wonderful in the cold and winter of Chicago. And that's just one of the delicious meals I've tried through HelloFresh. We know you'll love it too. With over 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, you'll never get bored. Get 16 free meals plus three gifts with code SISTERS16 at HelloFresh.com slash SISTERS16. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Wine Banks, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. We're excited to announce that we have a brand new item in our Hashtag Sisters in Law merch store. It is a women's tea. Go to politicon.com slash merch and get yours now before they sell out. Today, we will be discussing the judge's dismissal of Sarah Palin's lawsuit against the New York Times. Donald Trump being ordered to sit for a deposition in the civil fraud investigation by the attorney general and the motion filed by John Durham with more allegations about Hillary Clinton's campaign again. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Um, You know, it was a big news week, a heavy news week. And I want to get some advice from my sisters about something that is much lighter Um, I find sometimes when I am up on a weekend morning early, you know, it's Sunday morning, I kind of want to do some work like, you know, tidying up of emails and that sort of thing that doesn't require much heavy lifting. And I'm looking for some lighter music to listen to. Um, I, uh, the stuff I tend to listen to, I, I realized recently, is rather dated. So, you know, it's music I refer to as kind of Sunday morning groove. And so for me, that's Tracy Chapman, maybe Nora Jones, maybe Sean Colvin. Uh, and it occurred to me I really need to update my repertoire or, if nothing else, at least broaden my repertoire. I wondered if, if, if you guys have any suggestions or maybe the kind of thing, kind of music you like to listen to when you're kind of, you know, just being chill and is, is kind of in the background, but it allows you to work. You, you have anything that you found that is a good Sunday morning groove? You know, Barb, I don't know. Um, you're saying that you listen to music that seems dated. If I, when I look at my playlist, they're the same as they were uh, 15 years ago. So I cannot uh, say that I've. Uh, yeah, although listened. the 90s, I'll point out, is 30 years ago. But oh, go on. Okay, there's some of that on there too. But uh, but just listening to you talk about this, I'm reminded that one of my um, former single person behaviors was I would get up on Sundays, I'd grab the newspaper, I'd make myself some eggs, and um, in my in my kitchen in my old department there I had like uh, stools that go up to the the kitchen counter and I would sit there read the paper listen to Sade Mm -hmm. and it was the most soothing nice easy way to ease into a Sunday and I Mm -hmm. really enjoyed doing sometimes it would you know sometimes I would vary a little bit and I might uh, pick Joan Armitrading or something but it was just a gentle nice way Mm -hmm. to start my Sunday Uh, and I, I realize I don't do that anymore and I should bring that behavior back. I know my husband also smooth likes... Smooth operator. Yeah, that's the yeah, kind of thing. Smooth operator is good. My husband likes yeah. things like Sinatra or likes, you know, b- old big band. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it still does the job, but I think that's a great idea for a Sunday morning. What about you, Joyce? Yeah. 
You know, um, two things that I used to do to decide what music I wanted to listen to are less available. One was I would sit in coffee shops and I would use the Shazam app on my phone. If there was a song that was playing in the background, I thought, oh, that's a song that I like. I would add it into my playlist. And of course, I don't sit in coffee shops right now, so I don't do that. And then my two youngest kids, who were both off, um, one at school, one doing a fellowship year, uh, I used to pick up their music. My daughter listened to, to exactly the kind of music that you're describing, Barb, sort of what we used to listen to in the 90s. She would listen to the 20-something version of that, so she kept me current. Mm. But my son did something that was even much more fun for me. He loves rap, so he turned me on to musicians like Little Nas X um, and, and music like that that I incorporated into my play. Playlists. Um, I sort of miss their influence, but I, I tend to be all over the board. And something I've been doing for the last month or so is listening to show tunes. I've gone back to listening to the soundtrack from Hamilton and, and Dear Evan Hansen, and I really like that music on a Sunday morning. Oh, that's good. I love the image of Joyce, you know, belting it out while she's knitting in a quiet Sunday morning. That's excellent. To Old Town you, Road. <laughs> you know? and, or rapping and Springsteen, right? Rapping, Always Springsteen. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Jill? Are you a, are you a rapper or a show tune gal? <laughs> I'm a very eclectic in my musical taste. I'm sort of with Greg uh, because I love Frank Sinatra. Um, my husband's and my favorite song is "Strangers in the Night" by Frank Sinatra, but. We also love Diana Krall. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. A mm-hmm. fabulous, mm-hmm. she's really good for a Sunday also morning. Also from the 90s, I think. Um, I would have to say, if you think dated, <laughs> my playlist is really dated because I loved 50s and 60s music, and I've never outgrown it. But I, I, I love Ella Fitzgerald, who mm-hmm. I think is mm-hmm. timeless. Mm-hmm. And I did appear once on the beat with Ari Melber with Royce to 5'9". And so I did some real research on his music. I found that I had a Jill's pin because he had a song called Caterpillar, and I actually had a Caterpillar oh, pin. Right. Um, but so it sort of brought me into his music. And he was also, he was delightful and charming, and he was, he was just fun to be with. Um, so I listened to sort of a very wild thing. When I'm in my car listening to things, I, the CDs that I keep in my car the one I play the most is opera. And Lachme is a very little-known opera, and I listen to that constantly, and it is perfect for a Sunday morning. It's just beautiful, beautiful, soothing music. Hey, Barb, Sad will you story, send us a link, Jill? I love opera, and I don't know that one. I'd oh. love to listen to it. Oh, I will, I think definitely. we need a Sisters-in-Law Sunday Morning Groove um, playlist. playlist. Maybe I we think can, that's uh, a great idea. Maybe our, listeners, idea. maybe our listeners could make some suggestions about what we should be listening to on a Sunday morning, and we can, we can curate uh, our own list based on our own taste and maybe some submissions from our listeners. How about that? Listeners, give me something good to listen to on a Sunday morning. And I will leave us with just one more. Remind when Joyce said uh, that her kids would give her things. My, my stepson have, uh, has my husband and I listening to Yola, um, who, based on your taste, Barb, I think you might like. So that's a place to start. Y-O-L-A. Right. She's a really uh, cool. great singer. And, uh, you know... Uh, our our uh, twenty year old step my twenty year old stepson my husband's twenty year old son is keeping us hip. All right, I will check out Yola, and then I can have something later than the nineties that I can tell people I'm listening to. <laughs> All right, well, let's get to it.
Our first topic today is about Sarah Palin and the judge's dismissal of her lawsuit. She's, of course, the former governor of Alaska and the former vice presidential candidate who couldn't name any newspaper she read and said she was qualified because she could see Russia from her house. Um, she certainly qualifies as a public figure. So when the New York Times incorrectly claimed a link between Palin and the 2011 mass shooting in Arizona that severely injured U.S. Representative Gabby Giffords, killed six and injured 13, she sued for libel despite the Times quickly publishing a correction saying there was no such link established and apologizing. She said her reputation was injured and claimed unspecified damages. This week, she had a double loss in a New York federal court. First, the U.S. District Court Judge Jed Rykoff uh, for the Southern District announced he would dismiss Palin's case regardless of how the jury ruled, and he did it while they were actually deliberating. So he let the jury take the case, and then he said, I'm going to dismiss it no matter what they said. But then she lost a second time because the jury ruled against her. So um, I, I want to ask some questions about this, but first, because people on Twitter are confused about what defamation is, I just wanted to say that it is generally how you get civil remedies when someone's words cause you harm to your reputation or livelihood. Libel is a form of defamation in writing or published, and slander is defamation that is spoken. So let me start with you, Barb, first, because, of course, she was ruled by the case from 1964, New York Times v. Sullivan, which set a standard about what evidence is necessary if you're a public figure in order to get compensation from someone who you say hurts your reputation. Does it, being opinion instead of news, because this uh, defamation happened in an opinion piece, does that make a difference and what is the standard? Yeah, so as you correctly note, Jill, the New York Times versus Sullivan is the landmark Supreme Court case that said when the matter involves a public official uh, or a public figure, then it's not enough to show that what they wrote was false. You have to show that they did so with a standard they described as actual malice. And actual malice means either that the uh, publisher knew that the statement was false or that they acted with reckless disregard as to whether it was false. And the reason that the standard is so heightened in that context is that the First Amendment is designed to promote freedom of the press and free speech. And we want to encourage the press to write about, even critically, about public officials. And so that might mean that from time to time, they get things wrong. Uh, and we tolerate that. It's okay. It's not great. And it's not great for the business reputation of any publication to get facts wrong. But in terms of whether that is makes them responsible for civil damages, it is only true if they can meet that heightened standard of either knowing that it was false or acting in reckless disregard as to falsity. Now, your question is whether it matters that it's opinion or straight news. Um, certainly, people are entitled to their own opinions. And if the opinion simply said, you know, uh, 
Sarah Palin is bad. We believe she is bad, whatever it is. That's someone's opinion, and, and you can't claim defamation for that. But what happens so often in these opinion pieces is they state facts and then use that uh, to base an opinion. And so in this one, it did include this false allegation about a link between her campaign uh, and this shooting incident. So that could properly be the basis for that. But what the judge found here is that she failed to show that the New York Times acted with that level of actual malice that is required. I'll also note, you also have to show damages. That is not only that the person you know made this false statement and did so with actual malice, but that um, it genuinely harmed your reputation. And so if they retracted it within a couple of days, it's difficult, I think, for her to show that uh, it in any way damaged her reputation. You know, I used to do this kind of work in private practice, and we used to talk about libel-proof plaintiffs. Sarah (laughs) Palin, for the reasons Jill, you know, laid out in opening, is just the poster child. If you look up in the dictionary, libel-proof plaintiff, (laughs) it's Sarah Palin. We should talk about it a little bit more um, after we get through some of the basic facts about why she is libel-proof. And um, I, I actually left out some of the most damaging things for her, but we'll talk about that later. Let me first go to Kim, who is our resident journalist as well as lawyer, and ask from a standpoint of a journalist, how important is the protection of New York Times v. Sullivan? Uh, Yeah. Why do we care? Yeah, it's really important because uh, this case came, uh, arose out of a, a, a tradition, unfortunately, uh, by public officials, um, public uh, uh, figures, people who uh, are famous. Donald Trump, even before he became president, was a public figure because he was famous. He put himself out in the public. He held himself out uh, in a way that, of course, invites uh, comment, that invites criticism. Uh, And so that even then, he would have been considered uh, a public figure for the purpose of this heightened standard. And what would happen with Trump and others, but particularly before this New York Times v. Sullivan um, precedent was established, was that these folks would bully the press with threats of lawsuits or actual lawsuits that would, um, you know, beleaguer newspapers and other um, publications and and um, r- whether it's radio, pr- print, or broadcast with the prospect of high legal fees or actual high legal fees in a way to basically bully them uh, to keep them from covering them. And that is antithetical to the First Amendment. So there had to be a standard for the the letter and the spirit of the First Amendment to be uh, met that says, look, we are not going to provide a vehicle through libel laws for people to essentially suppress the press. If you are harmed in a real and meaningful way, yes, you should be able to seek redress. But if the newspaper makes a mistake, for example, and they print a retraction or a correction and they set the record straight, well, that's not really harming you. But 
there's no reason for you then to turn around and ask for a multi-million dollar judgment and use this punitively. And we're going to talk, this matters in the Sarah Palin case as well for reasons we're going to talk about a little later, but it still happens today. We saw the way that Donald Trump threatened lawsuits against everyone. He campaigned on quote unquote, opening up the libel laws in a way to make it easier to sue the press. He, He called the press the enemy of the people. So standards like this really are important that allow um, journalists, particularly those at smaller publications. You know, I work at the Boston Globe. We have lawyers. Uh, we can defend against a, a libel case if it, if one is um, if if someone files one. But a lot of smaller news publications, they would be terrified of that. They do not have the money to pay for lawyers, let alone pay potentially pay a judgment. So it's really important to have that protection. So that is important. Um, but Joyce, before we get to some of these other pending issues. The judge here did something unusual because he announced he would throw the case out and he did it after he let the case go to the jury saying that basically if the jury ruled in her favor, he was going to overturn it and let the appellate court have the benefit of their verdict. Um, And I know many of our questioners want this answered because we got at least two questions about this, one from Susan in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, and one from Kelly at Kelly Banish. Um, And so I want to talk about what the grounds were for his decision to dismiss the complaint and what did he mean when he said that the jury decided uh, on the facts and he on the law and talk about whether it's unusual for a judge to take a case from the jury uh, and especially after they're deliberating. Yeah, so actually in a libel case where, as Barb explained, the plaintiff has to prove actual malice, the Supreme Court has actually contemplated that there will be cases where the judge might make this finding against the plaintiff as a matter of law. And, and here's what that means. In our, in our trial system, juries are the judge of the facts and judges are the judge of the law. And so, you know, judges call the balls and the strikes in trial and decide what evidence comes in. But they also have an additional role. And this is the role that the judge played in this case. He determined that as a matter of law, there was simply insufficient evidence for the jury to find that actual malice existed. And so he made that finding. Um, And that's actually okay. What's a little bit odd in this case is the timing. And I think that that's, you know, where you're headed here. As you pointed out, Jill, that the judge's reason was a good one. It's important for him to make his ruling if he believes that that's the correct ruling. But he acknowledged, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm a judge. I'm not God. And in the event that a court on appeal should reverse me, it's important that we have a jury verdict so that there wouldn't have to be a second trial. If the judge's legal ruling on the law gets reversed, then the court of appeals would have a jury verdict sitting there, and they could insert that as the outcome of the trial without going to the time and expense of a second trial. The problem here is obviously that the judge has a jury that isn't sequestered. He makes his decision, and then he announces it while the jury is deliberating, And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that that would leak into the proceedings and and possibly gum up the works down the road. So before we get to that question, Barb, I want to ask about some of the reporting that the, or maybe we should go to it right now, that the jury did learn of Judge Rakoff's decision before reaching a verdict. 
And even though the jurors say it didn't impact their verdict, do you think it's grounds for an appeal? Yeah, you know, um, as Joyce mentioned, uh, it didn't take a rocket scientist to know. I I think um, this is a case where a judge has been on the bench for a long time and has probably done this in the past where I announce my verdict and the jury, of course, won't hear it and we'll just let them do their thing and then we'll see how, you know, what they come up with so that there's at least a decision on appeal. But, you know, in 2022, in a case that's as high profile as this, involving Sarah Palin, a former vice presidential candidate, you have to know that this information is very likely to get to the jurors. And so it would have been very easy for him to write his order and seal it uh, and then wait for the verdict and then share it. But I think he was trying to preempt them because uh, if they announce their verdict and then he comes out in contradiction of them, it looks much more heavy-handed. And so I think he wanted to preempt their decision. Uh, but I think it's it's bad um, uh, practice. I think he did it uh, just wrong and was doing it to kind of save his own reputation. I think that's a bad practice. Um, but nonetheless, is it a basis for appeal, Jill? I think probably not, although I think that there is some fair speculation that could be made that, you know, the jury was inclined to do one thing and then they saw what the judge said and, you know, the power of suggestion by a person who is as powerful as the judge. Jurors typically find the the judge in the courtroom to be, you know, a very wise person, someone they respect, someone they trust. And so I think it's quite likely that the judge did influence their decision. Now, on appeal, the question will be, there's great deference for findings of fact, as were done here by the judge. It's also the case that it would only be reversed if they found that there was some genuine issue to suggest that the judge got it wrong and that uh, a jury, if they had not been tainted, would also have had come out to a different view. Or there could be a basis to say there was a legal error in one of the jury instructions. Based on everything I've read about it, it is what, what it really dictated the outcome of this case was this very legal, high legal standard that she had to satisfy that actual malice standard and that she just didn't have the evidence to do that. And so I think what's more likely here is that she's trying to use this case as a test case, a vehicle for changing the law. So I don't think the verdict is likely to be changed. If so, the remedy is you get to do the trial again. That's fine. But I think what really is going on here is she wants to push the agenda and say the actual malice standard is uh, too stringent and it should be changed. And there has been some suggestion by some members of the Supreme Court that they have an appetite for revisiting the New York Times versus Sullivan standard and perhaps lowering it to something. So I think that's what this case is all about. It's about getting this legal issue teed up uh, before the courts in hopes of, of changing that legal opinion. Okay, so um, I, I want to ask about her as a witness because there was substantial criticism of Sarah Palin's performance as a witness. And it even led to speculation that she wasn't paying for this case, that someone else was paying her legal fees because she would have taken it more seriously if she had. Um, So, Kim, can you talk about why her performance was so poor? What, What were the grounds alleged for her failure to be a persuasive witness? Yeah, so, um, in much of the coverage that I saw uh, of her performance, it or her testimony, sorry, that it was more or less a, a performance, that she did not seem, um, not only was she not persuasive, that this reporting had harmed her in some significant way, right? Joyce is right. You have to show that 
you were harmed by whatever this libel is. It's not, uh, you have to prove damage to one's reputation. She didn't seem uh, to understand that that's what she needed to do. She certainly didn't demonstrate ways that she was harmed. And at times, she seemed not even to be taking it seriously. For example, uh, on cross-examination, when it was pointed out that she was able to, you know, go on the mask singer uh, as a contestant. So clearly, her reputation wasn't harmed enough to prevent her from doing that. Uh, when the question was asked, Sarah Palin herself said, I object, uh, causing laughter in the courtroom. <laughs> and when asked, why did you do, why was she acting like her own attorney? She said, oh, I was just trying to be funny, right? Well, this is a serious case. So that led to speculation. So I'm going to bring up another case, which is uh, important here. Gawker, if you recall the uh, online publication Gawker, it was shut down by a lawsuit brought by Hulk Hogan. We don't need to get into the facts of that case. It involves Hulk Hogan and a sex tape, and that's all you need to know. But it was later found out, it was a nine-figure judgment against Gawker that resulted in that publication shutting down. And it turned out that uh, Peter Thiel, uh, who is an executive, uh, one of the founders, founders of PayPal, bankrolled that lawsuit because he wanted ostensibly Gawker shut down because years before, Gawker printed a post which outed him as gay. Now... Teal, who later went on to announce at the Republican National Convention that he was proud to be gay, certainly could not bring a libel suit. It, you would have to show that being being called gay is libelous, which I don't think it is. And also, truth is an absolute defense. If he is, um, that's not a libel claim. But he was still pretty angry about it. And so he bankrolled that uh, lawsuit to end Gawker in a way that is very, um, that goes against the spirit, certainly, of the First Amendment, if not the letter. Well, the lawyers who represented Hulk Hogan were present at the Palin trial, which led reporters from Politico and elsewhere to ask Palin and others, uh, is Peter Thiel paying for this? They never answered that question. Uh, but if that's the idea is either to bring attention to the New York Times uh, about this, or as Barb said, to make this a vehicle to try to change, open up the libel laws, as Donald Trump said, that's mm -hmm. important to know, because then this isn't really about Sarah Palin. This is about something much bigger. So Joyce, just to follow up on what Barb said, uh, let's talk about what's next for this case in terms of appeal. Sure. Palin likely appeals to the Court of Appeals, and then if she loses there, which she should, she'll try to get the Supreme Court to hear this case on cert. I think Barb is absolutely right about, about what's going on here, but I think Palin's strategy is misguided. What she wants to do or what the people who she's, uh, you know, talked with this lawsuit about want to do is tee up the issue for the Supreme Court of either doing away with the Times versus Sullivan standard, or perhaps modifying it. And Justice Thomas has been waging a campaign for the past few years to overturn the actual malice standard. He hasn't been really able to attract anybody else until last year when Neil Gorsuch seemed to jump in with him. The thinking is this. The actual malice standard existed in the day where there was three network stations that were giving people news and a couple of big newspapers, and people were thoughtful and careful, and they thought-checked before they wrote. Neil Gorsuch says, you know, now that there's all of this stuff out there, people who don't fact-check and, and all of these media outlets, 
We need to have a standard that lets public figures recover more easily than the very high standard that actual malice brings into play. So it's entirely likely that Palin wants to tee up her case to, to change that standard. I'm sure she'd love to have her name attached to undoing that. But the facts in this case are so weak and so bad. I think that this is an unlikely vehicle, uh, even if there are more than two justices inclined to take this up. You know, if you care about the environment like I do, but you still want to keep your house nice and clean, you can get rid of plastic waste and get powerful, effective cleaners for your entire home with Blue Land. Their idea is simple and beautiful. Buy the bottle once, refill it forever, no more plastic waste. The only thing you need to discard is your outdated idea that eco-friendly products are more expensive and less effective. Just fill Blue Land's beautiful Instagram-worthy bottles with warm water, Pop in one of the hand soap or spray cleaner tablets, and within minutes you have powerful cleaning products in incredible scents like iris agave, lemon, and lavender eucalyptus. From their best-selling clean essentials kit to their hand soap duo and plastic-free laundry and dishwasher tablets, Blue Land has something for every inch of your home, and you'll feel good about not using as much plastic. And now back by popular demand is Blue Land's toilet tablet cleaner. Get it before it sells out again. Blue Land's stunning, high-quality, forever bottles start at just $10 when you buy a kit and are meant to be reused forever with money-saving refill tablets that start at just $2. Try Blue Land today. If you've got to clean, be smart about it. You'll love it, and the planet will thank you. And right now, you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com sisters. That's 20% off your first order of any Blue Land products at blueland.com slash sisters, blueland.com slash sisters, or look for the link in our show notes. So there were some dramatic developments this week in the investigation into the Trump Organization and its accounting practices. A judge ruled that the former president, his son Don Jr., and daughter Ivanka must sit for depositions in New York Attorney General Tish James' probe within 21 days. That comes a few days after Trump's longtime accounting firm, Mazars, decided to cut ties with the organization, saying that some documents it prepared should not be relied upon. Uh, also, recall that tr- the Trump organization's internal accountant, CFO Alan Weisselberg, is under indictment. And Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's criminal investigation is still live. So where is this all going? Jill, let's start with these depots. Do you think they'll actually happen? Will the Trumps appeal? Will they plead the fifth? What do you expect? So before I answer your question, I want to also say that in addition to three weeks to depositions, the judge also ordered two weeks to document production, which is really fast and good. Do I think it will happen? I do think it will happen, but not as fast as any of us would like it to happen because Trump will appeal, and if it's just for delay, that's probably the only reason he's doing it, because I think he will end up losing, and eventually he will not testify. He will claim the Fifth Amendment if he is forced to actually show up at a deposition. Um, There is legal authority and a factual predicate to justify the investigation and the subpoenas, 
Uh, the defense is arguing that it's just a way to get testimony for the DA's criminal case without going to a grand jury and being forced to give Donald Trump and two of his children, who are also part of this subpoena, immunity from prosecution, um, even though they wouldn't get immunity from civil uh, liability. They would, in New York, get immunity from any criminal case if they appeared before a grand jury. Um, I think it'll happen and that the evidence will be used by banks for civil claims against the organization and possibly for criminal prosecution by the DA and uh, even maybe the attorney general under the Martin Act. So, yes, it's going to happen, but it's going to be delayed. So, Barb, the statements from Mazars in particular appear to me to be uh, big old pieces of evidence that Donald Trump did exactly what Attorney General James is accusing him of, lying about the value of his assets. How how damning is this? Oh, I agree, Kim. I, I kind of read it the same way. They basically <laughs> say, you remember like those financial reports that we submitted for a period of 10 years? Um, yeah, you know, it turns out we've learned some things and we no longer say those were reliable. Ten years, you say. And they said, based on allegations we have learned from the attorney general, as well as our own investigation, we no longer stand by those uh, financial statements. You know, I, I guess there's two ways I could read that. One is that they um, were unwitting dupes, just like everybody else. You know, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, now that we've read, you know, um, one of the key pieces of evidence in this case is that Letitia James filed this very lengthy brief in court in January where she was demonstrating why she needed to take these depositions. And so she collected all the evidence that she has, or at least part of the evidence that she has. And it was really an overwhelming case talking about a number of different properties and the really shocking disparities that exist between some of the reported valuations of them. You know, for example, there's one real estate property that was valued at $200 million one year and $400 million the next. Uh, you know, Trump represented that the square footage of his apartment at Trump Tower was 10,000 square feet, uh, or I'm sorry, 30,000 square feet, when in fact it's 10,000 square feet. So things that are pretty objectively uh, verifiable that look like they're wrong. And so it may be that when all of this information was brought to the attention of Mazars, they said, huh, turns out um, these all look really troubling, and so we no longer stand by our, our statements. Or it could be once they read that thing, they thought, oh, man, um, we are all in trouble, and it is time yeah. to jump ship and distance ourselves from Donald Trump. So we'll see. The facts will... will uh, prevail and, and will let us know which of either of those categories is or, or some other scenario. It reminds me a little bit of the trial against Paul Manafort. You may remember he was Trump's former campaign manager who was charged with and convicted of a number of financial frauds, uh, including misrepresenting his assets to banks so that he could qualify for loans after his work in Ukraine dried up. And one of the key witnesses in that case was his former accountant. Um, and there were a, a few different people involved in his financial preparations. You know, one of whom said, if I get bad information, you know, I rely on it and I prepare these statements. And so, uh, you know, it's only as good as the information I get. There was another witness who testified with um, an immunity 
Grant, uh, who said, I got this information and I processed it. And, um, and I, I think for some of these people, sometimes it, it, it appears that they may have been acting under what's known as the willful blindness standard. That is, there should have been some red flags that properties don't gain value from 200 to $400 million in one year. And apartments don't go from 10,000 square feet to 30,000 square feet in one year. And yet business was good. And so they kind of looked the other way and processed this. So I think that'll come out in the end. But nonetheless, um, this was, I think, probably Trump's security blanket to say, see, my accountant says it's okay. So it's okay. Now that they're gone, that security blanket has been ripped off. And I think the facts uh, are very ugly and um, have been exposed. I think the only thing shocking is that it took them so long. I mean, we have known for many years that Trump lies and creates false information. And even if you didn't know before he started running for office, when you could read in the New York Times the falsities, you certainly saw it happening right in front of your eyes and how anyone could take his statements of valuation without double-checking. And when they sign those financial statements, they are basically, yes, they're relying on the information they got from their client, but they have more of a responsibility when they accept the retainer to do some checking and to check the tone at the top. So I think that they're guilty, and maybe they're just cooperating now because it's to protect themselves from criminal liability. Yeah. So, Joyce, you know, I'd almost forgotten about the ongoing criminal investigation. What liability could the organization be facing and the Trumps themselves? And how are the civil and criminal probes related? That has a lot to do with the fact that we're likely going to see some, if not all, of the Trumps pleading the fifth uh, in these depots, right? Yeah, the interconnection is really interesting because, of course, the Trump organization is already indicted along with CFO Alan Weisselberg in the case that was brought when Cy Vance was still the DA in Manhattan. Now we have a new district attorney, Alvin Bragg, and his office, frankly, has been very quiet about how the investigation is progressing. That may have something to do with Bragg's background. Um, I think he spent some time as a federal prosecutor, and he's been a little bit more circumspect than his predecessor so far. Uh, But there has been reporting that criminal prosecutors in in his office have zeroed in on financial documents that Trump used to obtain loans and boast about his wealth, and that they've questioned one of Trump's accountants recently before a grand jury as part of their examination of financial statements. So I think that Jill's assessment of Mazar's role here is is right. Their letter saying that they're withdrawing from representing Trump says that they have a non-waivable conflict of interest with Trump. And that suggests that they are cooperating with the New York attorney generals, at least with the civil case, and potentially with the criminal case too, because what this comes down to is how did those bad numbers happen? And, uh, you know, Mazars is going to say, it wasn't us. It's what Barb says, garbage in, garbage out. And there will be someone who will be able to say where they got those numbers from. Who provided it? You know, it didn't just show up in the mail one day. There would have had to have been back and forth communications. Accountants always have questions about stuff. Who did they talk to and and who did that person talk to? So the interesting question is obviously whether they can tie any of this to Trump himself 
Trump is always the best witness against himself, by the way. And one of the advantages of the aggressive civil case is that Tish James, the New York attorney general, elicits this written response from Trump in which he testifies against himself. Um, You know, I think it was Barb who said on TV this week (laughs) that Trump is a nightmare of a client. If I was his lawyer, I would have fired him for making that statement because he really drops the dime on himself. Um, So God bless him. I I sort of wish he would zip it. The lawyer part of me thinks, oh, please don't do that to yourself. And then the human being part of me says, oh, keep it up. This is some of the best evidence against you. Uh, So all of this evidence, right, is available to prosecutors if there is a criminal indictment down the road. But I have a caveat, and and I do wonder what y'all think about this. There are often parallel proceedings where there's a criminal case and a civil case going on at the same time. I had that situation in my old office where I was, in fact, running both of them. And you would often delay the civil case to let the criminal case go forward. And even when that happened in other settings where I had, for instance, a criminal civil rights prosecution against police officers, but there was also a civil action being brought by a victim, you would either work out a deal or or go to court to delay the civil case until the criminal case was concluded. There are a lot of good reasons for letting criminal cases go ahead. There's a statute of limitations. You don't want to have a lot of witness statements floating around there that could interfere or, or make the criminal case less clear. The burden of proof is higher. And so I have to wonder a little bit about the fact that the civil case is moving ahead so much more quickly than the criminal case appears to be, and if that might signify that prosecutors have run into trouble on the criminal side of this matter, so they're letting the civil case go on. Yeah, so it will be interesting to see what happens, including what uh, Trump's additional statements are. For those who didn't see it, he was uh, just increasing the amount he said that his company was worth in the billions of by by three billion dollars in dr evil speak um he just can't help himself he's i'm grateful uh, that he is not my client because that really would be a nightmare bless his heart Jill, you know, I'm not a big dieter, but I really love the way Noom makes me think about what I eat and what I do. Are you still using Noom? I am. And it's not a diet. It's a way to approach food as fuel, not as fun. And it really works. It's psychologically terrific. And it's been very effective and it's made me feel so much better and more able to do exercise and everything else. I love my coach and I love all the lessons that they teach. What about you, Joyce? You know, I think the same thing, Jill. I think it's more about retraining your eating habits. And I think I had told y'all I had fallen off the wagon a little bit over the Christmas holidays and just wasn't motivated in January. In fact, I was motivated to bake a whole lot. And so I was trying out new recipes and making cakes and pastries. And I was, of course, eating them. But I found that Noom had given me the ability to eat half of a cupcake and remind myself that that was enough. And now I've gotten serious about it again. And, you know, Noom is a no-judgment zone, right? I mean, I, I just can pick back up and feel good about myself again. What about you, Barb? Uh, well, you know, I'm a big uh, believer in Noom. I, I found it to be really life-changing. You know, all those things that you've always known you're supposed to do, like eat vegetables and uh, lean meats and limit sweets and all those kinds of things, that 
I kind of knew in the back of my mind, but we didn't really pay a lot of attention to. Turns out when you actually pay attention to it, it can make a world of difference. And so I lost a lot of weight. I feel really fit. I feel really energetic. So I think it's, uh, I think it's terrific. Uh, Noom shows you how to pursue the goals you set for yourself, and it makes you reach them, focusing on motivation and improvement based on science and not the latest fads. No food is off limits. It's about finding your balance. That's the key to progress and success. The Noom app is easy to use, and if you're like us, you're busy. So I love that Noom lets you be the boss and decide how much time you use it. Over 75% of Noomers end up finishing the program, with more than 60% of users losing 5% or more of body weight in 16 weeks, and 60% of engaged users keep the weight off for a year or more. So get empowered, stay on track with Noom. Start building better habits for healthier long-term results. Sign up for your trial and get psychology-based support and motivation to reach your goals at noom.com slash sistersinlaw. That's noom.com slash sistersinlaw to sign up for your trial or look for the link in our show notes. So y'all, right-wing media erupted this week with reports, none of them are true, that Hillary Clinton somehow manufactured a nefarious investigation into the Trump campaign. Because y'all know that Hillary is running again in 2024, right? I mean, that's the Fox News talking point. Um, This all comes out of a case filed by a federal prosecutor, John Durham, against a former DOJ employee, Michael Sussman, who's a lawyer. So, Kim, remind us who John Durham is and what role he's playing at DOJ right now. Yeah, so John Durham is a former U.S. attorney from Connecticut who uh, was appointed uh, special counsel by uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr to investigate uh, the origins of the Russia investigation, or as the former president said, uh, the oranges of the Russia investigation. If y'all don't know what I'm talking about, (laughs) Google Trump oranges Russia and watch that video and thank me later. Um, And so this came, uh, Trump made that demand, of course, after the Mueller report, uh, in after which he declared that he had been cleared of both uh, charges of obstruction uh, of justice and collusion. Um, Of course, the Mueller report actually had 10 instances of likely obstruction, which led to an impeachment trial. So that wasn't true. But it was very important for Donald Trump that the origins of this investigation be found out. He was convinced that it involved spying and and all kinds of broken laws, and Michael Flynn was egging him on. Um, And so uh, Barr appointed John Durham as special counsel to head up this investigation three years ago. You know, it's worth noting that along the way to the indictment of Michael Sussman, John Durham lost his longtime lieutenant and friend, Nora Danahy, who had been a prosecutor in his office in Connecticut and was highly regarded in DOJ. And there's some speculation that the wheels have sort of gone off the wagon in this investigation. So, Jill, talk to us about Michael Sussman, the defendant that that John Durham has indicted, and about the charges against him. It's a fascinating set of circumstances here because what Durham was supposed to be investigating, of course, was to do with the origins of the Russia investigation, which has panned out to have no cases as a result of his investigation. 
and he has focused on Michael Sussman, who was a Department of Justice lawyer for 12 years. And now, then he became a partner at uh, Perkins Coie, which is a very well-known and well-respected law firm, international firm, where he was a cybersecurity lawyer based on his DOJ experience. Although in all these fake reports uh, containing lies, he's identified as Hillary Clinton's lawyer because that serves the purpose of their narrative. Um, he represented the DNC in a case of Russia hacking the DNC servers. And that's where he came into um, you know, the public mind. He's been charged with one count of lying about whether when he went to the FBI's general counsel, who was a friend of his, and reported information that had come from a legitimate investigation that seemed to indicate that there was a connection between uh, a, a Russian bank and the Trump uh, campaign offices, whether he was acting on behalf of a client, which has nothing to do with the substantive truth of what he reported. And it's not even clear that the facts show that he actually did or didn't do it. It's at most a he said versus he said. And um, the other question is whether, if, even if he made this false statement, even if it was false, is it material so that it would be qualified for prosecution under the count that has been brought against him? It's a very long speaking indictment, and it's for one count of false statement, which requires that it be a false statement and that it was material to the investigation. And neither of those facts seems to be correct. Um, and they're making a lot out of this. It's something that if you read any mainstream newspaper, you didn't read about. But if you read any right-wing newspaper or listened to the news, that's where his name came up. And until this uh, event, he was a partner who is, had, has been forced to leave the firm until this is resolved, or maybe forever, I don't know. Um, I tried to find out what he's doing right now, and as far as I can tell, he's defending himself in this case. So we've got an indictment that reads more like a novella than an indictment for charging someone uh, with false statements to the federal government. That's a case that I can indict in half a page, right? It's all above the fold. This isn't a complicated charge. And yet there was this desire to set out extensive, uh, uh, in, in many cases, irrelevant facts. This is a five-year-old statement. It wasn't recorded. The defendant denies making it. This is a case that wouldn't have made it out of indictment review in my old office, to be honest. And now we have this pretty unusual motion that Sussman's lawyers have filed to dismiss the case. They're arguing about materiality, which, Jill, you identify as one of the important elements that the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, that it was material, that the statement mattered. Decisions about issues like that are typically left up to juries. But the, pro the defense lawyers in this case are asking the judge to decide that as a matter of law, the statement isn't material. Barb, do you think that they're going to succeed, and, and why are they doing this? I think it's very likely that this motion will succeed. As you say, jo Joyce, 
this indictment would never have made it out of my former office. A false statement can be, as you say, articulated in about half a page. Instead, this one uses 27 pages because the bulk of it is about this whole counter narrative about how the Hillary Clinton campaign was trying to undermine uh, the Trump campaign. Um, but it, 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 it fails on the essential element of materiality. I think it may also fail on the falsity of the statement, because they can't even pin down exactly what the statement was or whether it was false. The only witness to it is Jim Baker, a name our listeners may remember as the former general counsel at the FBI, who is a straight shooter. And I think he's the only witness, and he's been asked about it. He's like, I don't know what they said. He's, he's, he's testified under oath about it. And he says, I don't really remember. This guy was a lawyer I knew. He came to see me. He provided some information. I said, thanks for the information and was on my way. And so it was after the fact that Durham, having searched for something to cling to as proof that the origins of the Russia investigation were somehow improper, originally looking at the investigators, the FBI and DOJ, instead found that the FBI was perhaps a victim here and charged Sussman with coming forward on behalf of the Hillary Clinton campaign. But materiality is an essential element of a false statement. That is, even if you say something false to a federal government official, it has to be material. That is important, and it is defined as a statement that has the tendency to influence a matter under consideration. Our friend Chuck Rosenberg has a great analogy that he uses for this. He says, if I'm talking to you and asking you questions that are really important and you're reporting a crime, if you tell me that your favorite flavor of ice cream is vanilla, but in fact your favorite flavor of ice cream is chocolate, that may be false but it is not in any way material to our discussion. And so here, the part that they say was material was that he said he was there, he was not there on behalf of any client, when in fact they say he was there on behalf of the Hillary Clinton campaign. Now, mind you, they don't say that the substance of the information he provided was false. That is, that there appeared to be Russian banks connected with Trump Tower and the White House, which, by the way, was still in the Obama administration at the time. They never contest that that's false, that the substance of it is false, just that he, who he was there on behalf. And so also importantly, what Jim Baker has said under oath while testifying before Congress about this is it would not have mattered to us if we had known who he was representing because we at the FBI don't let people vouch for us. We do the work ourselves. We always investigate tips that we think are serious. We would have and we did investigate this tip. It isn't the tip that was false. It was the source of the tip. And we don't care who the source is. We do our own vetting. And we did and we investigated it. And ultimately, it did not pan out. But it did not matter to us that it was um, whether Sussman was there on behalf of a client or not. In that way, I think it would be absolutely impossible for the government to meet its burden to prove this element beyond a reasonable doubt, unanimously to a jury of 12 people. And so for that reason, I think it's very likely that the judge will dismiss this as a matter of law, that there is no evidence to support this claim. As you say, Joyce, ordinarily, these are fact questions for a jury, but if there is no evidence from which a rational finder of fact could find guilt, could find this evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, then a judge should dismiss it. And I'm going to predict right here that a judge will. So that's really interesting. I have a slightly different take on that. I I think that the judge may let all the evidence come in at trial and let the government put on its case 
and then direct a verdict against the government. Because I think you're exactly right when you say there's just no evidence of materiality and maybe even of a false statement here. And this case could be a massive embarrassment for the government. There are even people who've questioned why Merrick Garland signed off on this indictment with a case so weak. But it has caused a furor, Kim, on Fox News and elsewhere on right-wing media. What are are they all saying? Is Hillary going to be our next president? (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting. I haven't seen Hillary Clinton in headlines, uh, you know, since maybe two weeks ago on Fox (laughs) News. Um, But they certainly have picked this up, run with it, run with this uh, clearly inaccurate uh, narrative that Sussman was working on behalf of Hillary Clinton uh, in in an effort to spy on the Trump campaign. It's Worth noting that even uh, John Durham in his own paperwork notes that the metadata, it was no spying involved, it was metadata that was involved, came from the Obama administration. You know, fact schmacks, you don't need those. There's been a constant narrative in conservative media that seized on this little bit. And uh, interesting enough, Hillary Clinton uh, talked about this this week and mentioning, we're going back to New York Times v. Sullivan, uh, that this sounds uh, something close to actual malice, it was sort of a veiled threat that if they keep it up, they could be faced with a lawsuit um, that caused maybe this to die down a little bit, except for Sean Hannity, uh, who responded by saying, bring it. Now, I hope that the uh, libel lawyers at Fox News uh, are are ready to go because um They would need to do a lot of work to avoid that if Fox keeps heading down this path. But we may see yet another bit of, uh, we may see another lawsuit that we may have to discuss on a future podcast. We're really coming full circle, right? If you want to tee up the case where the Supreme Court could change the actual (laughs) malice standard, it would be this one where where it actually exists. Um, there has been a big furor, and I noticed that John Durham this morning even filed a statement with the court, or, or you know, maybe it was a public statement. I haven't looked at it carefully, so I apologize. Right. But he seemed to be saying, I didn't mean for this to get blown out of proportion on, on the right. um, media. Jill, Barb, what do you guys make of what's going on here? This is so unseemly for prosecutors to be involved in something like this and, and to sort of sprong the news into existence. What's happening? I think it is despicable what's happening, and it has gone really way too far. And it does bring us back to the judge, uh, Rakoff, dismissing Sarah Palin's case, saying basically no reasonable jury could ever possibly find in favor of her case because the legal elements are missing. It's the same thing here. It's made up, and as you noted in you know before, The way this indictment of Michael Sussman was drafted was really to portray a narrative that had nothing to do with the case. That was a, you know, few paragraphs was all you would need for the actual indictment. So I think it is really, uh, we have to remember that it was, Durham was appointed first to just sort of do a preliminary report investigation kind of thing. And it was only after Trump lost and was soon going to be gone that he was named a special prosecutor so that he would be able to stay on at the Department of Justice after uh, the new administration took over, because otherwise this would have been called off because there was no there there. 
there still has not been, and he's been in office way longer than Mueller was, and there has not been one single indictment that could be possibly linked to the original uh, remit that he had. So I think it's a terrible situation and a shame. Barb, have you heard about Bloom Nutrition? Yeah, I have. It is, you know, a great supplement. And uh, I know that Kim and Jill have tried it. Kim, have you enjoyed it? I really have. You know, I am not the first person, I'll admit, to uh, want to drink my vegetables. Um, but <laughs> I really do want to make sure that I get a, a, have a balanced diet and eat enough vegetables every day. We all get busy and that's something that can easily be forgotten. And so uh, I tried Bloom Nutrition uh, and it is very tasty. Both my husband and I were surprised at how good it is. And it's easy. It just takes a few seconds and a drink, whether you do it first thing in the morning or uh, for a snack, and you can get the nutrients you need. What about you, Jill? I am loving it. I just tried it, and I have used it both when I'm really busy in the morning and don't have time to actually sit down and do the thing you should do, which is to have a proper breakfast. That's one of the things that we have all know is true. But if you just mix it either with uh, fruit or something in a blender, or just put it in a glass of water. It's a tasty, low-calorie, healthy way to get your nutrition in the morning. And in the afternoon, when you're sort of flagging your energy and you want to just sit down and get some work done, it's a great pick-me-up. So I'm, I'm loving it. I had some right before we recorded this podcast, and I've noticed that my morning routine can really make or break how my day is going to go. Whether I'm uh, going out for a hike or I'm choosing to hit the snooze button, I make sure I'm going to have my best day every day by starting with Bloom. I notice you are emitting some sort of superpower, Kim. It must be Bloom. (laughs) (laughs) Bloom Nutrition makes it easy and delicious to give your body what it needs to feel your best, inside and out. Their greens and superfood power blend fight bloating, help digestion, increase natural energy, and keep your skin glowing. Bloom greens are packed with over 50 nutrients, including whole fruits and veggies, fiber, probiotics, antioxidants, and more. All in one easy-to-drink formula. Just mix it with water or a smoothie to add to your daily routine, and it comes in four delicious flavors, coconut, mixed berry, citrus, and original. Bloom is made for you, whether you're trying to recover from a night out or you're a fitness buff, you'll be joining over 350,000 people who trust Bloom to feel better every day. And right now, Bloom Nutrition is offering our listeners 15% off your purchase of their greens and superfoods blend when you go to bloominu.com. That's B-L-O-O-M, letter N, letter U, dot com slash sisters for 15% off your purchase. That is bloom in com slash sisters for 15% off or look for the link in our show notes. Well, now we come to the favorite part of our show. It's uh, where we answer listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, please keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. 
Our first question comes from Sandy in Cleveland, who asks, what do you make of the sentence the judge imposed on Kim Potter? She, of course, is the police officer who was convicted of shooting and killing Dante Wright when she mistook her uh, firearm for a taser. Joyce, what about you? So, you know, Judge Chu handed down a sentence of 24 months. The prosecution had asked for seven years. And uh, she'll have 16 months of that to serve in prison. The judge found that it was uh, within her discretion to, and she did depart downwards. That's how she got to this approximately two-year figure. The defense lawyers had asked that Kim Potter be sentenced to probation. I think it's a disappointing result. It does little to deter future misconduct by police officers. Um, to prevent them from engaging in this form of extreme recklessness. But what really got to me during the sentencing was the judge's tone, which I thought was so disrespectful to the victim's family in her efforts to lift up the police officer. She made a point of talking ad nauseum about the hundreds of letters she'd received from important people saying Kim Potter was such a good person. And, you know, that's typically true of just about any defendant when they go to sentencing. Most people are good people. And like Kim Potter, they've made a terrible mistake and they deserve to be punished for it. I don't think this judge did her job. What about you, Jill? I agree completely with what Joyce is saying. And I also was disturbed by the fact that the the judge basically bought in completely to the defense. Oh, this was just a mistake. This wasn't. She was a training officer who should have never agreed to the stop to begin with. And once you get to that point, she set a bad example for the officer she was training, and now for every officer anywhere in the United States who sees that the consequences are not nothing. I mean, she will serve several more months. She's uh, credited for the time already served, and it will come down to just a few months more in jail, and that seems completely wrong. If she was at least forced to serve at least the full amount of the sentence, I would feel better about it. But I agree with Joyce that this was not a fair sentence. What about you, Kim? You know, it's really interesting. So today, there was a lot of uh, wind on the East Coast, as as some of y'all know. uh, And uh, a power line got knocked out uh, near my house. And so the street was closed off. As I was uh, awakening, there were police cars all up and down the street to close off traffic so that traffic obviously wouldn't get anywhere near this live wire. And despite the fact that I understood that that's the job of police officers, and I was very glad that they were there because, you know, I didn't want anybody to get hurt. um, My viscera had a very different reaction. I had some errands I was going to run this morning, and I chose not to because I really did not want to go walk past a bunch of police cars and police officers, regardless of what they were there for. And that feeling surprised me. And I realized it's like, wow, you know what, the past few years um, of all the images that we've seen of police brutality, all the stories that we've heard about it, even if it wasn't caught on tape, um, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, Sandra Bland, all, all the people who are not here, um, that has had a traumatizing effect in a way that I didn't even realize. Even when I know police are there for good, I don't want to have an interaction with them. 
And I didn't even realize that today was the sentencing for Kim Potter. I, I turned on the TV and there it was. And all I can think about um, is that we need as a society to make such fundamental changes about how policing is done, what the impact is on the community. And I think um, we need to hold all the people, um, whether or not they've had interactions. I've never been handcuffed. I've been stopped in ways that was terrifying by a police officer. But even having not being handcuffed or, or you know, facing a gun, um, it's still traumatizing. And all I can think of today are the members of the Wright family who testified today, including the mother of Dante Wright's son, Dante Jr. Um, she testified about how the baby was born premature and had to be in the NICU for months. And just thinking about that, thinking about how difficult uh, young motherhood has already been for her. And now the father of her son is dead. Um, there's a lot of trauma in the nation and in that family. And that's what I'm thinking of today. Yeah. You know, the conviction of Kim Potter, I thought was an important moment for accountability when police officers use violence against unarmed black motorists. But um, it feels a little bit like all that good has been undone by giving her what I see as kind of a slap on the wrist of a sentence here um, that does not fully uh, reflect the seriousness of the harm. Could I just add one thing, which is we often hear about jury nullification, that sometimes a jury will acquit because of reasons that have nothing to do with the law or the facts, but some other element. This is almost like judicial nullification, because even if she bought into the defense, the jury didn't. They convicted her, and she was sentencing for the crime that Kim Potter was convicted of, and she didn't do that. So I, I just feel like this is really a wrong sentence. Our next question comes from Don from Sea Ranch, California. And Don asks, how can local and state governments legally ban books? I think the answer, Don, is that it's, it's not the governments that are banning them from everybody. It's these school boards that are charged with selecting what they believe to be appropriate materials, learning materials for students of particular ages. And so I think in that way, that is how they are, quote unquote, banning books. They're not, uh, uh, you know, eliminating them from access in the state, but they're making it so that kids uh, can't read these books when they're in school. They won't be assigned reading. But that makes me wonder, sisters, uh, about your own reading. Uh, you know, there are all these lists out there of famous banned books. Wondering what uh, are your favorite banned books? Give me one. Joyce, what's your favorite banned book? Well, I know because we've talked about it that Jill and I have the same one. I've actually got Mouse sitting behind me on my <laughs> desk. It's a graphic novel written by the son of a Holocaust survivor. Um, and of course, in the spate of rising anti-Semitism, of course, Mouse makes the list of books that get banned, right? And I, I have the benefit of someone on Twitter having seen that I had tried to order both volumes of Mouse, and it's sold out. And oh, wow. they are sending me their copy of it so that I can read it. So I am very, you know, touched by that. And I, I, I would, I also have a t-shirt that says, I read banned books. And I think it's, <laughs> no book should be banned. I think that it's up to parents to say, I don't want you to read this, and here's why, or to explain what the real meaning of a book is. But it, no book should be banned from a library. That's how we get to authoritarian dictatorships and 
terrible outcomes, and the list is so long of banned books that it's frightening to me. Well, Jill, they're not going to know that because they're going to ban it. Uh, they're going to ban 1984, so they're not going to see what <laughs> happens when you ban the books. So. There's a course offered at Michigan Law School by some First Amendment scholars and the Chief Justice of our Michigan Supreme Court called Reading Banned Books for Credit, which I love. Um, and exploring <laughs> oh, just wow. these concepts. Yeah, isn't it great? I Kim, what's your favorite? Let's publish the curriculum from that yes. on our show notes. Yes. Kim, what is your favorite banned book? You know, I was going to say uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison, but I'm just going to broaden and say all the books, all the books by black people. <laughs> that are getting banned right now because there are a bunch of them. Yeah, if you look at the list, it, it is an enormous percentage of uh, of all the the books on the list. All right, yeah, it really is my goal to go through and read or reread all of the books yeah. that are getting banned. If somebody wants to ban them, you know that they've got to be worthwhile. Yeah, well, if you look at these books that have been banned historically, there are uh, you know a lot of classics like The Grapes of Wrath is on the list. Catcher in the Rye is on the list. Um, even the Harry Potter series is on the list, but I think I'm going to go with um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, a, a lawyer's favorite. That one's on the list, and I'm going to go with that one. So um, one. that's all we have for now, but listeners, we'd love to hear your favorite band books, too. So put them on our reading list for us. We'd love, we'd love to hear those. Thanks for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Jill Winebanks, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. And you can go to politicon.com slash merch to snag our new women's tea. It's terrific. It comes in a beautiful pale blue. We're all excited about it. We've all got our women's tea sisters-in-law shirts. So I hope you'll join us in solidarity in, in wearing them just in time for spring. Uh, and please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Noom, Blue Land, and Bloom Nutrition. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sistersinlaw. Y'all, I do have to tell you that my husband, we both used to do defamation work. He did a lot of work. And at one point, they were representing Penthouse. And it was before he was my husband. And I flew down and walked into his office unexpectedly on a Friday afternoon. And he had Penthouse magazines, a <laughs> bunch of them, spread out all over his desk. You know, and he had, it's classic. Bob is like six foot two, so his feet are up on his old desk. And he's looking, he's reading a Playboy. And I walk in, and I'm just laughing at him. And his senior partner, who's this lovely man, Jim Barton, who's in his 70s, the epitome of a Southern gentleman, except that he was super liberal. And Jim walks in and he looks at Bob, he looks at the penthouses, and he looks at me and he says, I swear to God, it's work-related. <laughs> so he was funny. so quick. He didn't want Bob to get in trouble. That's so great. So in the category of there's nothing I haven't done, <laughs> I get a call... No. I get a call that I'm in Penthouse magazine, and I freak That's out. That's new. This is during Watergate. <laughs> oh, no. And I oh, no. run Penthouse over to— Who knew? I, I run to a newsstand that's far enough away from the office, it's, but it's actually right near the White House, um, uh, right around the corner from the Willard Hotel. And 
in typical stupid fashion, I pick up Penthouse and I pick up Time Magazine and cover the <laughs> Penthouse with it. And I walk over to the cashier who takes a look at it and says, you want a brown paper bag, lady? <laughs> I'm like, I turn red and I, yes, please. And I leave the magazine store and I go back to my office, shut the door and I look and it's not, there's no photo. There is a comparison of me to Rosemary Woods, you know, just sort of our backgrounds and our heights or something, but there's no pictures. So I'm hugely relieved that it wasn't what I thought Some it was. Some people but buy it for the I, articles it, too. It, <laughs> is it true well, there's I, an item you know, on your resume that says once appeared in Penthouse Magazine? Yeah, so. No, it's not so. in my resume. Jill would be the ultimate um, champion of the anyway. game, Never Have I Ever. Yeah, well, no, there's, there's, she nothing, would end up there's nothing left. Because she's there's nothing on the list. <laughs> I'll turn right back. 